as my responsibility as a pastor, you know, I'm always seeking God's guidance for all sorts of things. Uh, and you should do this if you don't. The Bible says God is uh, willing always. And if anybody's lacking wisdom, uh, God gives uh, w- without restriction, without restraint. God turns the faucet on and he will give us as much as we can handle, as much as we want. He always is willing to give wisdom and guidance to his people. And as a pastor, I understand that my words carry a little bit more weight than most, uh, not because they might be more important than yours, but uh, mine are hooked up to a microphone a couple times a week, um, an audience of of two or three or more, uh, and I realize that I'm much more accountable for that, and most of the time people are listening to me because they think something good might come out of this or helpful, so I take that seriously. Uh, I always pray for God to give me words from His Word, because my words don't really matter uh, unless they're guided by His, Um, and, and obviously they're authenticated by what He has to say and what He has said, so I've been asking God this year, you know, on the back of, of a difficult up and down, you know, didn't know what was going to come next, and it usually was not something good, uh, 2020, and this year already, of, of course, there's a lot to be, uh, a lot to be burdened about, and a lot that maybe would weary us. Um, this year, I've been asking God uh, the last couple of months as we prep for a new season of messages, a new, uh, 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 you know, the first few months of this year, I've been asking God a very specific question, what do your people need to hear? You know, there's a whole, the Bible's big, and there's a lot of chapters, and, you know, there's a lot of, everybody has an opinion on what's most important, but hey, I, as a pastor, as your pastor, um, in a very specific place, in a very specific generation, and, and, and all that we've got going on, I've been going to God say, God, what do your people at Risen Church need to hear? And, and that might be difficult to land for everybody, because we're all different. Um, even if we are in the same place, we all have our own walks of life that we're a part of. And, and, and now, the word need is important, because that's what I, there's what I think we need to hear, there's what you think you need to hear, and then, there, of course, there's what you want to hear, uh, what we all want to hear some things, right? Um, you know, right now, there is so much noise in our world, uh, and there are so many words that we can plug into. You can listen to somebody talk from any aspect and angle uh, of ideology, ideologically and, and, and all sorts of beliefs and politics and religion, everything. You have, there are so many voices to plug into. So many outlets that you can get information from, words that confirm what you already believe, challenge what you believe, condemn what you believe, words that will give you panic and words that will give you peace. There are words that will distract you and preoccupy your mind. Maybe if you just want to check out from the real world, there's plenty of ways to get distracted. Um, But my interest on any given Sunday is what is God's word for us at this very moment? The Bible is always available for us, and at any moment we can turn to any page. Every bit of it is inspired. You won't go wrong reading any chapter, any verse, any time. Uh, there's always a relevant message from God, whether I'm preaching it or you're reading it or anyone in between. But as a pastor, I believe that each week uh, God holds men like myself accountable and to have our ears to the ground and our steps ordered by His Spirit so that God and His Word might get a timely message through us on any given Sunday. So I've been asking God, and and I've been praying over the last couple of months, what do your people need to hear who gather at Risen Church? What do we need to hear more than anything else? Which is, you know, that's you might think, well, that'd be hard to get a clear answer on. And Hey, it's, been a, it's not been the easiest road, uh, but across the next few months, our conversations will be steered by this question that I've been asking and the preparation that I've, I've been giving myself to um, around this question and around this time with God I've spent. Uh, of course, as much as I try to prepare in advance and launch into these evergreen, you know, always fitting messages that you can listen to anytime, anywhere, no matter what's going on, you know, life happens. 
and super big events happen, and come out of nowhere sometimes, and of course, that calls for an adjustment, a shift in the plan, and we want to always be relevant and, and speak to what's going on here and now, but also give you something that at any time in life, at any point in time, you could pull, you could pull out and say, hey, this is appropriate, this is applicable. Uh, but I believe, and I usually defer to God's foresight and his knowledge uh, about what we were going to go through whenever he started the ball, started to roll the ball with a message. So, turns out, I think where God is leading us over the next couple of weeks, the next couple of months, is perfect for what we face this week and what we're going to face, who knows what we're going to face in the weeks to come. And, and so usually early in the year uh, is, is time to start or, or bring, bring us together around something very broad, a very broad, very engaging uh, topic or conversation that will fit for the largest audience so that we all kind of can come in on a fresh, fresh start and kind of really get plugged into the Word and get excited about what God is up to and all kind of get acclimated to where God wants to take us in the year to come. So um, you know, as you start a new year, somebody might be new to church, somebody might be getting back into church, maybe you're a veteran church member, but you're looking for something fresh and new from God, uh, and, and, and the Bible uh, is the perfect book to read, and of course, our God is the perfect one to come to, uh, and, and, and the Bible often describes itself and often depicts itself and really God in general as a well. Now, this is an old-fashioned looking well, maybe you've seen one, maybe you have one like this, but in the ancient days, they weren't as even as sophisticated as this one might would be. And of course, now in today's world, they have automatic pumps and electricity and covers on them and everything else. But that's the best well I could show you to kind of get the image across that I think they, the biblical characters would have been familiar with. Um, the Bible describes God's word as a well. The Bible describes God as a well, as a fountain over and over again. And you're familiar, I'm sure, with some stories that we might reference today. Uh, the Bible, I can tell you, is a well to those who never drank from it. Uh, who are desperate for hope and are desperate for intervention from God. If there is a God, they want to be inter- they want their lives intervened by Him and and and, and encounter. They want to encounter Him. The Bible is a well for those who have drifted, who knew they'd find no rival or equal elsewhere, but they let their flesh pull them away anyway. And now they're back. Maybe now you're back. You're bruised and maybe you're ashamed. You've got some regret and you wonder if there's help for you, there's hope for you. The Bible promises you the journey is worth the water that can come from this well. The Bible is, of course, a well for those who have been here forever because as you have been coming to this well regularly, you understand your life has been sustained and supported by the precious offering of life that God gives you to drink. So as we gather around, as we ascend to the well for the first time, another time, or for a time beyond our ability to count, over the next couple of weeks, I think God wants us to draw out something very specific wants us to come together around something very refreshing. Here's, and here's where God has been leading me and take, talking to me about um, over the, the last couple of weeks. God has been telling me that my people need to know who I am and what I'm like. And you know, my response to that is, well, people know who you are, God. People know what you're like. But in the reality, in the grand scheme of things, we kind of all have some abstract ideas about God, and we kind of, you know, kind of have a lot of things that we've pulled from different things and experiences we went through. But I think it would be really refreshing for us, really helpful for us, to have a really kind of concrete uh, idea of who God is and what is He like. And, and the good news is the Bible reveals to us a comprehensive and cohesive picture of God, of the one true God. All the Bible from all the generations it was written and all the different experiences that people wrote from, the Bible gives us a picture, 
comprehensive and cohesive as it is, of one true, one single God. When we hear someone refer to God in our world today, we assume they're talking about our God, but in reality, there are many things in the world that are worshiped as God and, and that are called God. You see, in biblical times, when somebody referred to God, singular, most assumed it was the Jewish God uh, because most of the world worshiped many gods and they worshiped a pantheon of gods and they had very specific names for the gods. But when the Jews, when someone talked about their God or the God uh, in, the, in the ancient world, most assumed it was those weird Jewish monotheists who worshiped one God unlike anyone else. But still, the writers of Scripture, we overlook this, but they always refer to God with a very specific name. And, and you've read this a thousand times, and you've probably never paid attention to it. But there are many different names, as a matter of fact, that are all encompassed in a high and holy name that you often read in the Bible as the Lord God. You've read this a hundred times. And in your Bibles, the, the word Lord is always capitalized. And it's a special kind of you know, uh, font. Uh, but it's capitalized, L-O-R-D, the Lord God. Now that Lord is not you know, just in there to add emphasis to God. It's God's name. It's the name that was given to the Jewish God that was revealed to Moses that was taught and spread throughout the Jewish faith. And in Hebrew, the name, the, the, the phrase there is Yahweh Elohim. Now, Elohim is just a word that means God. It can be big, you know, capital G. It can be lowercase g. It just refers to, hey, do you believe in God or a God? Well, that's what that word means. So Yahweh is important because that's the name of the Jewish God. And that's why when you, re you often read it in the Old Testament, you'll see um, phrases like, the Lord is God, the Lord is our God, the Lord is the God of Israel, because Yahweh is the Lord God. Yahweh is the God of Israel. He is the one and only God. Now, here's something important to pay attention to and to notice. The Bible refers to God like this, but the people that were often saying his name and often writing these things, their theology was far less sophisticated than yours. And you might think you're not much of a scholar, but you are because you have a complete Bible and have so much knowledge that you've retained from church and from messages and from studying all these years. But the people that we read about in the Bible, they believed in one God, but remember, they didn't have a Bible. They didn't have a church. They didn't have gatherings like we have. Even in the Bible itself was written in retrospect after the events took place with hindsight and inspiration that kind of clarifies some things that maybe the people that experienced those things didn't necessarily know themselves. So my point is, if you pay attention to the stories, there, there, there are often these revelatory moments where people who get to see God, you know, do something spectacular, and we get to see God's people develop their understanding of God on the spot. We get to see them mature in their faith. And we get to see them make these declarations and confessions after experiencing something that are then included in the scripture and that help build the foundation of our faith. And they call God, often they'll refer to God by a very specific name. Uh, there's all sorts of names the Old Testament and the New Testament even gives to God. And that's important for where we're going over the next couple of weeks. Because all the different names of God come together to portray and describe the one and only Lord God. So the Lord God, that's his big, you know, overwhelming, over, you know, all-encompassing name, title that, that, that describes who he is. Now, to go ahead and spoil the whole story, all throughout the Old Testament, uh, with its different facets and angles of God uh, being revealed through all sorts of amazing events and moments, all that builds up, of course, to the New Testament. And y'all know how this goes. The New Testament reveals that the Lord, the Jewish God, Yahweh, became a man. In his name, in the Hebrew, it's Yahweh saves, but we call him Jesus, which is the one and only God became like 
us. So think about how monumental this coming of God was. That it took this title, that it took this little, this tiny oppressed and passed around and passed over people, the Jewish people, and made them a household name. Before this, the Jews were just these people that had been moved around and been conquered and been overcome over all, and over, all these years. And then after what God did through the New Testament and after coming into the world through Jesus, everybody knows the Jewish nation. Everyone knows Israel because of what God did through them. Now, even more remarkable, it took their religion, their practically fading and fallen from glory religion, which worshiped this single God that even its own people had pretty much given up on as part of God's plan. His own people thought it was over for them. They had turned away from their faith and their God, but Jesus showed up from, and, and from this religion and from this nation. God would change the world. And just think about what happened as a result of that. In 60 short years, in 60 short years, so 30 years, Jesus' birth to his death, and then 30 years after that, as his movement expanded, Jesus had been preached all around the Roman Empire by the mid-60s A.D. And within 300 years, within 300 years, the world that was was transformed by and had been transcended by Christianity so much that Christianity became the official faith of the empire that had spent 200 years trying to stamp it out. And consider this. When we consider world history and all the different empires that have ruled, consider how incredible it is that within 800 years, Jesus' entry into the world had drawn a line in the sands of time. And the world began to refer to time before Christ and since his coming. That's how much of an impact that Jesus has had on our world. Not to mention all the things he's changed about human, about our interactions with each other and the things that we do and the things that we put first. Jesus was and he is God. In him, the fullness of God dwells and all the different angles and sides of God found in the Bible find their full revelation in him. But again, we hear that a lot. We hear that said a lot. But what distinguishes Jesus? Maybe you're still wondering. What distinguishes Jesus as the one and only God? Maybe you don't just want me to tell you that he is God and you just believe it and that's not a bad way to go, but maybe you want more. And I think we should have this information as our second, as second nature. We should know why we worship Jesus, why he is the one and only God, what sets him apart. And while it's easy to move past the past, there's so much revealed and hidden away in the stories of the Bible that gives us more information and details about our God that help us not only uh, think, you know, think things about God, but know things about God. And wouldn't you rather be able to say to somebody, you know, instead of, well, I'm not sure, but I think this is true and I hope this is true, wouldn't you rather be able to say to somebody, well, the Bible tells me this about God and this is what I know about God. Wouldn't you rather, and this isn't something you have to go to, you know, four, six, eight years of school to learn. Every believer with the Bible in their hands can know for certain who God is and what he is like. On every page of every book is an important uh, it's an important information that reveals detail and reflection of who God is. With every drink and every draw from the well, you get a clearer picture, which builds on the last. So every page, again, builds on the next. And as we understand who the Bible reveals God to be and what it reveals him to be like, we will have a more clear and certain understanding of Jesus, his exclusivity and his uniqueness as the one true God, because it might be an arrogant thing for some, to, for Christians to think and say that they, they worship the only God. 
But what we're going to come out of this study knowing is we're going to find a clearer picture and a more certain understanding of who the Bible reveals God to be and how Jesus punctuated that all the more. So we're going to begin our journey, a shorter study than the ones that come in a few weeks. We're going to begin our journey in Genesis 16, one of the most overlooked chapters of the Bible. You might know a little bit about this chapter, but I guarantee you haven't done much studying of the whole chapter. Uh, again, woefully underrated, rarely read in its entirety, so we're going to do just that and read Genesis chapter 16, not long at all. You've heard this story before, maybe you've heard the whole story before, but I want to unpack it and I want to make sure we get the full blessing from this text. Now Sarah, Abraham's wife, had borne him no children, and she had an Egyptian maidservant whose name was Hagar. So Sarah said to Abram, See now, the Lord has restrained me from bearing children. Please go to my maid. Perhaps I shall obtain children by her. And Abraham heeded the voice of Sarah. Then Sarah, Abram's wife, took Hagar, her maid, the Egyptian, and gave her to her husband, Abram, to be his wife after Abram had dwelt ten years in the land of Canaan. So he went into Hagar, and she conceived. And when she saw that she had conceived, her mistress became despised in her eyes. Then Sarah said to Abram, My wrong be upon you. I have gave, I've gave my handmaid into your embrace, and when she saw that she had conceived, I became despised in her eyes. The Lord judge between you and me. So Abram said to Sarah, Indeed your maid is in your hand. Do to her as you please. And when Sarah dealt harshly with her, she fled from her presence. Now the angel of the Lord found her by the spring of water in the wilderness, by the spring on the way to Shur. And he said, Hagar, Sarah's maid. Where have you come from and where are you going? She said, I am fleeing from the presence of my mistress, Sarah. And the angel of the Lord said, Return to your mistress and submit yourself under her hand. The angel said to Sarah, I will multiply your descendants exceedingly so that they shall not be counted for multitude. And the angel of the Lord said to her, Behold, you are with child. You shall bear a son. You shall call his name Ishmael because the Lord has heard your affliction. He shall be a wild man. His hand shall be against every man, every man's hand against him. He shall dwell in the presence of all of his people. Then she called the name of the Lord who spoke to her. You are the God who sees. For she said, Have I also here seen him who sees me? Therefore the well was called Beer Lahai Roy. Observe, as it is between Kadesh and Bered. So Hagar bore Abram a son, and Abram named his son, whom Hagar bore, Ishmael. Abram was 86 years old when Hagar bore Ishmael to Abram. So this chapter is right in the middle of the story that we all know very well. This chapter we usually skip over because we don't really, we know the consequences of this chapter, but it really isn't part of the full story. So it's easy to skip over and say, let's move on to the, when they have Isaac and, and all that fun stuff. So again, this story, in the middle of the story of Abraham and Sarah, we are introduced to Hagar and Ishmael. And aside from a little mention later, this is their only spotlight. And it doesn't really give us, a, we don't usually put this in a good spotlight. Now, the overall story and really history in general have sort of made Hagar and Ishmael kind of villains in the story, which is really unfortunate. But these two characters actually contribute a very powerful revelation or two about God to us and through the word and to our faith. So before we get there, I want to talk about how these two became part of the story because surprisingly, it's very relevant for us in our world today. So I think we just need to pay attention to this. Sarah and Abraham had been promised by God 
that God would give them a child. Now, I don't have to go through that for you with you. We've heard that over and over again. God, they've said, I don't know if this is going to work, God. I don't know if we can believe you, God. And God says, yes, I'm going to give you, Abraham, and you, Sarah. Y'all know how this works. Y'all are going to have a baby together. I know you're getting old. I know it doesn't seem like things are going to work out, but you got to believe me. Remember, go count the stars again. Count the sand again. Listen, I've showed you that I'm going to be faithful. You have got to trust me. Well, of course they didn't trust him because that's what we do as people, right? But Sarah, she gets kind of the bad rap in this story. Abraham, does, you know, he's, he does plenty of, of, of dumb things. So this, in this chapter, Sarah kind of bears the, 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 takes the role of let's not trust the Lord. So Sarah decides that God might need some help. Now that sounds completely crazy for anybody to think, but we've been there before, haven't we? God might need some help fulfilling or keeping his part of the deal. So she recommends to Abraham that he commit adultery with Hagar in order to help God out. I mean, that makes a lot of sense, right? You just go ahead and do that. That's, that will definitely be in God's will. Rather than staying committed to God and Sarah, literally Abraham was going to join himself to another person. Now, if that was too subliminal, let me just come out right here and say what I think we all expect to come next. God doesn't need any help at taking care of his people and keeping his promises. He does not. Now, before we think, well, I've never doubted that he, I never thought he needed help, but we do. We just maybe don't do it the same way they did it. He is not reliant on anybody. Now, here's the thing. He may work through certain people, but he doesn't only work through certain people. Does that make sense? He may indeed do great things through somebody. But that doesn't mean he's only able to do great things through that somebody. So we need not worry if we can't point to the somebody he is working through or see the results of his work through someone or some people or somebody. In fact, sometimes, we work, sometimes he works through the people that we never expect him to work through or we would not select him to work through. And that includes who we see in the mirror because Abraham and Sarah doubted that God could use them. They were very hard on themselves and very un unbelieving that God could do something with their lives at such an older age and after going through so much. But God absolutely doesn't want us yoking ourselves with anybody else in order to find security and help that he has said he will give. Now, that's not relevant at all, is it? Does that mean that he doesn't use people? Of course he uses people, but let me illustrate this for you. God using someone doesn't involve us bringing them to him and say, hey, how about you using this person? That's not how God works. That's not how it works. Yes, God might use someone, but he doesn't wait for us to bring somebody to him and say, well, this is the person I'd like for you to use. So, hey, God, can you go ahead and stamp this and make sure this is pretty convenient for me so I don't know who you've got selected for me or what you've got selected for us, but I've picked this person out. I think they'll do a great job. But isn't it true that we can join ourselves with somebody and, and it kind of becomes a third wheel in our relationship with God? And you know what that is? It's spiritual adultery, not to get too deep for you. Worse than that, it's idolatry. And this will help explain why there's a lot of graphic, extreme rhetoric by the prophets. Read Jeremiah 3, Ezekiel 16, the whole book of Hosea, where they accuse Israel of being an unfaithful spouse to God. Now, to add insult to injury, those that we often trust in usually disappoint us, don't they? Or the results from the transaction will disappoint us. Which is to say, I think that's why God shakes things up. 
And you say, well, I, didn't, I, I, I wasn't, you know, I didn't put more faith in them than, in, you know, than, than him. Maybe you didn't. But God shakes things up to make sure that our faith is in him alone. Now, here's the tragic part of this story. When we put our faith in other people, not only are we hurting ourselves, but we're also hurting them. We who know better are signaling to people that our faith is rather flimsy and just for looks. Can you imagine what this did to Hagar? Can you imagine how this affected her? Now, Hagar probably joined the entourage back in Genesis 12 when Abraham, remember he lied to Pharaoh about Sarah being his sister and said, yeah, go ahead and take her and do whatever you want to with her. Just keep me safe. Remember that? And then Abraham somehow, someway left Egypt with a lot of money and a lot of livestock and some servants. And this is where Hagar comes from. Hagar becomes Sarah's handmaiden. She watches Abraham and Sarah be blessed by God, favored by God. She heard him become this renowned figure in the land. She witnessed God promise him so much. And this is how they respond to God? Can you imagine what she must have thought as she watched them, blessed and highly favored, act like pagans? I mean, she was raised in paganism. She knew what it was like to try to trick God and try to work a deal out with God and try to make him, you know, move and help him out. That's how she was raised. She was raised to worship idols that never responded, with superstitions that never confirmed anything but fears, anxieties, and uncertainties. She had seen Abraham and Sarah engage with their God in a way that no one ever had before, and they respond by acting no better than pagans and playing games like the pagans play. They respond by bringing her before God and saying, okay, God, here's my plan. Will you sign off on this? How many of us have, have you ever done that before? Don't raise your hand because I don't want to humiliate anybody. I've done that before. I come to God and say, God, this is my plan because you're just not working fast enough. You're not moving, so I'm going to move for you. So here's what I'm going to do. And oh, by the way, God, I've already kind of done the deal. I've already kind of put all my eggs in that basket. I've already kind of moved my weight on this place or on this person or on this thing. So I know I should have came to you first. I know I should have kind of asked if it was even part of your will, but since you weren't doing anything, I just kind of helped you out a little bit. So now that I'm in a mess, or now that I'm in a situation that I maybe shouldn't be in, I really hope you bail me out, or I literally hope that you make this look like it was a part of your plan the whole time. Now, don't we do that all the time? But can you imagine how this would have landed with Hagar because she was the one being pushed in front of God as their plan? Remember the story of David and Bathsheba? Remember the story where David had had a few bad days and he was bummed out and he decided he was going to hang out instead of going to battle and then he obviously got tempted and decided to do some things he shouldn't do and then because he made a mess, he had to get rid of Bathsheba's husband, Uriah. So he calls on Joab and he writes Joab a letter and he says, Joab, I'm, I've written you this, don't read it to get on the battlefield, but when you get to the battlefield, you have very specific instructions about how to act on this scene. So Joab unwraps, opens the letter and it basically tells him to put Uriah on the front line. Now, y'all know what the Bible says about David. A man after God's own heart. A man who had witnessed and heard God and sang to God. Can you imagine what Joab thought as he read that letter and as he put that in action? So this is the man after God's own heart. Can you imagine what the world thinks of us when they see us believe and behave no differently than they do? I'll tell you what they think about that. They don't pay attention because they don't see us as different than them. 
That's the worst part. It'd be great for them to say, y'all aren't acting like Christians because they don't, they don't say that because they don't even notice that we are Christians. We just look like them and wear different hats. You see, putting all our hopes and dreams and weight on things that we claim to not be dependent on, like Abraham and Sarah's case, cheating and breaking his vow to Sarah. You say, well, it was her idea. Women, y'all know this. It might have been her idea, but it wasn't her action. So I, I don't think Abraham got away with this one. Well, it was your, you, know, you, you told me to do it. And that's essentially what we do figuratively all the time, isn't it? Abraham was supposed to be showing people through his life and his deeds who God was. But do you think Hagar had a very clear image of God through what she observed in this story? I don't think so. And it all sets up a very powerful conclusion to the story. Sarah is obviously expectedly disappointed that the birth of a child through Hagar didn't make her feel better. It wasn't ever going to be her child. She knew that before going into this. Gee, no one could have saw this coming. Instead of being fulfilled, she feels inferior. She's jealous and all, full of all sorts of emotions. Abraham, being the great husband that he is shown to be, says, well, I had nothing to do with this, Sarah. I don't know how that baby, I don't know how she has that, that baby was born. I don't know. Y'all know how? I don't know how that happened. So why don't you fix the problem, Sarah? Abraham always is really manning up. So he tells Sarah, hey, I don't know how this happened. I didn't do anything wrong. You know, your idea, so you deal with the woman. So Sarah says, okay, she banishes Hagar. Can you imagine this? A, a however many months pregnant woman banished. She was a slave. She had no rights. She had no, you know, she was a commodity in this culture. She was a piece of property. And here she is banished to the desert with a child in her womb by the very people that God had a covenant with. I mean, is that a good story to tell? I don't think so. Hagar runs away, is driven away with less understanding and confidence in the one true God than ever. You know, I think that's how a lot of us feel. And that shouldn't be the case. I think we feel like that we've been run away and driven away, and I think that we have less confidence and understanding of God than we ever have, and that really isn't how it should be in America. We live in a free country where churches are everywhere, Bibles are everywhere, Bible studies and books and sermons and services, podcasts and documentaries. We have all the access in the world to who God is. Yet for whatever reason, we know less about God than we should, and we're less certain about God than most would expect we should be. And what we think we know or have been told to know really doesn't line up that much with Scripture. Maybe it's because those we've had our eyes on have done a poor job at demonstrating Him to us. Maybe those who claim to speak for Him have delivered a muddled message. Maybe in our generation there's been as much preached and modeled about trusting in material and worldly things as there has been trusting in God and God alone. And not to put the blame only on preachers and churches, maybe we just don't realize how fearful and unfaithful our nature really is. Maybe we are a people who claim to be under God, but we're more like next to God. See, we, we, we talk about being under God, but we're really more adjacent to God. Let me explain. See, we want His earthly blessings, and we want His, earthly, His eternal security, but we pay way too much attention to, and we stay plugged into the wrong things. So if we're really under God, we wouldn't be plugged into and paying attention to the wrong things. And, and that, for that reason, we're more next to than under. And I don't say this to pick on anybody. I know our whole country is wounded and wearied right now. But you know why I think this is true? 
Because we're like Abraham and Sarah. We have access to the God of the universe, and we might as well be talking to and trusting in rocks. Hello? I mean, we can stand on a mountain and talk to God, but we're, we're, we're doing this stuff. Okay, God, I don't know what your plan is, but, you know, I, I came up with one on my own. You know, I'm pretty smart sometimes. I wrote this whole thing down, and I did a math equation, and I figured this out. So, God, would you, do, would you take this and make something out of it? I mean, that never works, and we still do it. <laughs> and there's a whole world full of Hagar's, isn't there? They have run away or been driven away. Instead of finding help and healing from the church, they found they're just a people. They found a people just like them, confused, really worse off. No different. So maybe you're like Hagar. In fact, all of us are like Hagar. We come to religion and we come to government and society and politics. We expect to find help, but we find an empty well, don't we? You see, we come to these 21st century filtered and purified, high-pressured, crisp and clear wells that our world has built. And we expect to find plenty, but we leave empty, don't we? We're very empty, if you can say that. God has a word for us today. He has a word for you. If you will confess that you are like Abraham and Sarah and you've went about things the wrong way. If we can confess that we have tried to do the thing that only God can do. If we'll confess that we're like Hagar, that we're desperate for the real thing, not some inferior cheap copy. Hagar finds herself exhausted. She comes to a well in the wilderness, and it's here that she finds the true relief she's been looking for. It says there that she comes to a spring, which was a well that would have been dug by some of the travelers. God sends an angel to Hagar in the story who comes with a revelation about God or from God. And there's a very important transaction I want to show you in the story. God shows Hagar one thing, and then she discovers another thing. So when you read God's Word, when you attend church, when we worship and devote ourselves to Him, we'll always find truths from God, and then God begins to build on those truths. See, God gives us faith, and our faith gives us clarity. So the more faith you have, the clearer you can see, not because you have visual aids or visual help, but because your faith is guiding you, as in you're walking by faith and not by sight. And here's the beautiful thing. As you receive from God and as you begin to walk in faith and have clarity, you aren't deterred by what you see. And the more you see that looks bad, the less you are worried because you know that's just the devil trying to get you to go back to a former place and to an old habit and to an old way. And you're not going to be, you know, tempted by that you're not going to fall for that trick because you're walking by faith and let everything you see paint doom and gloom but your faith tells you that's not the case see God gives you faith when you seek him and you turn to him God gives you faith and even better he intervenes in our lives when it seems like we're at the end of our road She came to a well hoping that she could find something to drink because she was wearied by the world. But God said that woman needs more than a drink of water. She needs an experience from heaven. See, she thought what she needed was just something to hold her up in this life, but she needed something more than that. And that goes for you and me too, doesn't it? See, that's what Abraham continued to stumble in. God would show him one thing, but instead of responding or building off of it, he would turn away and do something worse in response. And with that in mind, the angel says to, ha- to, to Hagar, first things first, Hagar, your son, I want you to name him Ishmael because he's going to always remind you this about God. God has heard your affliction. 
So I want you to name your son Ishmael because his name is going to mean God hears. So when you think nobody hears you, God is listening, not because he's trying to get you, but because he's trying to help you. And he knows what you're going through. He hears your cry for, uh, for help. There's a theme in the Bible. We read about it in Sodom and Gomorrah as the city was oppressing its people. The Bible says a cry went up to heaven because the people that were being oppressed, their, their cry was reaching the ears of God. When the Egyptians were persecuting the Jews, their cry went up to heaven. Hagar crying out for help didn't know who to cry out to because Abraham's God clearly wasn't somebody she was interested in if he was like they were treating him. So she's crying out for somebody to hear and the God, of course, of Abraham that he may have did a bad job representing sends an angel to do a better job so that he might remind us don't make the same mistake that Abraham and Sarah just made. God has heard your cry. God has a plan. You've got to trust him and you've got to wait on him. And if you come to his well, if you drink from his cup, you'll not only never go thirsty, but you won't be more parched. And isn't it true that when we turn to the world for relief, it's like we're already running on empty. It's like eating and drinking something that's super bitter and super dry. And no wonder we feel worse. Because it just made the problem worse, didn't it? Later on in the book of Jeremiah, God says, My people have committed two evils. They've forsaken me, the fountain of living water, and they've dug wells or hewn cisterns for themselves that can hold no water. So no wonder we're thirsty because we've turned from the living water and we've dug wells that seem like they're really well established and can produce the water that we need. But God says the bottom is, is falling out. They can't hold the water, therefore you can't get anything from them. God hears your cry. He hears your heartbreaking. He heard Hagar's and he responded with a promise, and he's given us an invitation to come and drink from a better well. Listen to Hagar's response, really her discovery. I, I, this is one of the, if, if you've never read this verse before, if you've never memorized this verse, I know we don't think about Hagar as being a great saint of God, but this is so powerful. Hagar, God says, I hear you, and what does she proclaim? What, does she, what, is this, what prophetical word comes out of her that is in the Bible? She called the name of the Lord who spoke to her, you are the God who sees. And she says, have I also seen him who sees me? And she names that well after this encounter with God. And from this experience, a very popular name began to be used to describe not just the God of Abraham, but the God of Hagar. El Roy. The God who sees me. Not just the God who sees everything, because of course he sees everything. But what you care about is if he sees you, right? Hagar's story reminds us that we are seen by God. Not just observed by God, but acknowledged by God as in, yeah, I see you. I see you, you're mine, I know you, and I've got a plan for you. I see you, and I'm going to attend to you. And I love her exclamation, have I seen the one who sees me? This revelation was a one-of-a-kind encounter with God that this forgotten handmaiden got to experience. And isn't that ironic? And doesn't it serve to punctuate the message even louder? Hagar, this who, who we never consider as a star of the Scripture. She's not in the Hall of Fame in Hebrews 11. Nobody ever repeats her name in the Old Testament. Hagar, this often overlooked, driven and cast out, not accepted by the very people that used her. Isn't that awful? 
The very people that used her like a, like a, a chess piece threw her away. And yet God makes a point to include her and instill value in her. And this is the story the church needs to be telling more than anything right now because there's a world out there that doesn't realize this is the God that we serve. I don't think the church realizes this. God makes a point to include her and instill value in her. And this is God's message to every outcast, every exile, to every oppressed, and all that are overlooked. He sees you, he hears you, and he loves you. Do you believe that? Are you listening to people that don't see you and they don't hear you and they don't love you, but they're good at lying about it? Are you falling for their tricks? Or are you looking to the God who says, I see you, I hear you? The validation you look for, the affirmation you look for, the appreciation you chase after, that well that you go to every day and it never gives you what you need. The self-esteem that we won't build up, that we try everything to cater to. God says the world sells you tickets, but they're frauds and they're fakes. And even if they take you somewhere, they don't last long enough to fill the void. They just make it worse. When you come to the one and only God who Jesus made visible, you find this God. You know, one of the, last, one of the first stops that Jesus made in his ministry, he came to a well in Samaria. Now, the Samaritans were not friends with the Jews. Jews didn't like them. They didn't like the Jews, but the Jews thought they were better than them, so they wouldn't go near them. So Jesus said, hey, we got to go to Samaria. And the disciples said, you can go to Samaria, but we're not going to Samaria. And oh, by the way, it wasn't just a well in Samaria. It was a well in Samaria where only certain types showed up, hoping they might get to go somewhere else from that well, hoping they would meet certain people. And it wasn't for good purposes. So at high noon, Jesus insisted on stopping at this well. No one went with him, but there comes a Samaritan woman who, let's just say, had a less than acceptable lifestyle. She came looking for someone to make her feel heard and seen and valued. She came looking for a man with the same thing on his mind as on her mind. She found somebody completely different, though. She had been in a mess for her entire life, trying to find a validation, affirmation. She was trying to find something to make her feel important, to make her feel purposed. And she comes to Jesus, and Jesus is asking her questions, and she, gets, she realizes pretty quickly Jesus isn't really interested in her like most of the men were interested in her. And she finally says, why are you wasting my time? And then Jesus kind of gets under her skin. He says, if you drink from this well, you're going to get thirsty again. And she feels something in her soul, because he's not just talking about the well. He ain't just talking about the water. And her heart is about to pound out of her chest. And she looks at him, and he realizes he's looking straight through her soul. And he says, listen, ma'am, whoever drinks of the water that I give him will never be thirsty again. The water I will give will become a spring of water welling up to eternal life. At this point, she knew this was not what she expected to encounter this day. She pleaded to receive this water, and Jesus said, well, let's talk about the other wells you've been drinking from. And they talk about her lifestyle, and she talks about her attempts to find help in religion, and he says, listen, ma'am, I'm not here to waste your time. And she finally admits and confesses she's at the end of her road, and Jesus seems like he's going to just leave her without any help, and she says, well, you know what? I know that Messiah is coming. The old stories tell us that Messiah is coming, and one day, one day, he's going to come, and he's going to make all things right. But you know what? Until then, I guess I'm just lost, and I'm just left here to wandering around. 
going from man to man or going from well to well, whatever. I'm just here. I was hoping you had some help for me, but I guess you don't because nobody seems to have help in this world. And Jesus looks her in the eyes and he says something to her that he never said to anybody else. He says, I who you speak to am he. Hagar said, have I seen the God who has seen me? Have I seen the God who sees me and knows me and hears me and loves me? Could that be possible? And Jesus says to someone like her all those years later, you are looking in the eye of the one that can help you, that can save you. I've not come to cooperate with you. I've come to demonstrate God's power and his plan to save you. And he gives her this revelation that he was the Messiah. The woman left her water jar there because she didn't need that anymore. She went away into town and said, come see a man who has told me all that I ever did. And if y'all know me, I've not done a lot good. Could this be the Christ? He hears me, he sees me, and he still loves me. That's who our God is, church. When people say, who is your God? God who? The God who sees me, that's who. Who sees me, who knows me, who hears me. And he loves me anyway. Have you encountered this God? Don't let the world or religion convince you that you can't or that there are ways that you have to measure up beforehand. Come to Jesus. He loves you. He sees you. Whatever you're going through right now, it's not lost to him. Better yet, you are not lost to him. You can encounter and experience Jesus today in your heart by faith. And you know what? I think this message is as relevant to Christians as it is to somebody who isn't a Christian. Because somehow we've covered up this about God, haven't we? that God sees you. He knows what you're going through. He loves you. He hears your cry. And he's waiting on you to come to him and say, I don't want to drink from any other well but this one right here. When we put all of our weight on him, when we cast our cares in front of him, we can experience this wellspring of eternal life like Hagar did, like this unnamed Samaritan woman did. You can too. Let me pray for you. Father, we love you and we're thankful that you are the God who hears. You're the God who sees. God, it's a beautiful reminder as you reached out to these two women in two different parts of time who were going through similar things. One had been used and one had given into a lifestyle of being used. They didn't think that they could have a relationship with God. They thought they had went too far and done too much wrong. And the world hadn't given them or the church hadn't given them, religion hadn't given them any reason to put their faith in you because why would they trust in the God that was represented so badly to them? But yet you intervened in Hagar's life and you intervened in the Samaritan woman's life and as they came to wells looking for water, you showed up and gave them something better. 
Lord, there's a world full of people that are knocking down walls to try to get to a well they think is going to give them what they need. But those wells are bottomless. Those wells have nothing to offer. Those wells are broken. Those wells are dry. May you open our eyes and open our hearts up to receive the living water today. May we understand that we have a God who sees us and who hears us and who loves us. And if we pour ourselves out to him, we can be filled with the life that only Jesus can give. And we can go to a world that is equally and likewise dry and wearied and show them there's a God who can help them too. Lord, I pray you might would speak through this moment of invitation. You would give us a, a, a reminder from heaven that you see us and you hear us just the same. You love us and you're here for us. So we, could we respond to you? in the only fitting way. We ask this in Jesus' name. Amen.